You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Good morning. In case you were wondering about the video that we played of someone being baptized, that was actually done during the first service, and since you didn't get to see that, we've started videoing those that happened in the first service so that you can also celebrate with the individual that uh, was baptized. Uh, we forgot, I think Derek forgot to tell that. People are going, well, what's up Yeah, that? well, Kelsey was going to mention it, and then he asked me to do it at the welcome, and I had like 15 announcements. Yeah, man, you oh. need to, wow, what, what's, too well, much stuff going on. Too many, too many things the church is doing, man. We're just, we're booming. Yeah. What can I say? Well, uh, I uh, flew in last night late from Reno, Nevada. I was there for three days, and I've met a number of first-time guests. Let me explain what I'm about to say here. You know, for 37 years, I introduced myself to people at the front door as the senior pastor. Yeah. And now, I can't do that. Nope. And, and I get confused. And so I say, I, for 37 years, I was the senior pastor, but now a guy half my age is. How about that? <laughs> okay. And I've just been demoted to teaching pastor. Actually, that to me is a... Is a, is a, hey, it's a, it's that's a promotion. Up the ladder. It's that's, a promotion, yeah. yeah. Anyway, the reason that's happened, uh, for those of you that are guests with us, is because over the last three years I produced and directed a video series uh, called The Fearless Series for Women, which is about a con- getting the conversation started in churches for women about the sexual abuse of women and to uh, be able to enable women in the church to begin that conversation and to experience healing because we've been doing that work for 30 years here and uh, so there wasn't a tool like that so I launched into it and produced it and I'm going around now the country uh, promoting that. That's what I was doing in Reno, Nevada Thursday, Friday and Saturday. Uh, Thursday night I did an event at a church, Reno Christian Fellowship with a group of women. I showed the first uh, video of the Fearless series and then um, um, we had questions, and I want to share with you, uh, this got really heavy. These women, are, they were so raw, and, and it's, they didn't care if it was a dude or a woman up there. They, they had things they wanted to say, and it, 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 it blew me away. Uh, I've been doing this now around the country for a while, and uh, this was quite an experience the other night. Let me just read you a couple of questions, and then we'll get to the teaching. Uh, what about husbands who feel they have the right to sex even when the wife is not interested? Now, she's speaking from a woman who's been traumatized by sexual abuse, okay? And, and I go, wow, a woman ought to be up here answering this question, but I'll answer it as a pastor. And, and so I did, and, and we talked about that, and, and it was, took about 10 minutes that we worked through that. Well, it, you know, what is, what is the obligation here, and, and how do you communicate that? And it was really cool. Um, then uh, what is classified as sexual abuse? Wow, and that, we deal with that in, in the series, that all sexual abuse is not physical. It can be verbal. And uh, it says, how do I share with my children and grandchildren my story of sexual abuse? And how can I protect my daughter and teen granddaughters to talk about it? Mm. We talked about that. We also deal with that in the series. All these things are questions are things that we actually dealt with in the five videos of the series. And here's a woman that was just flat honest. She said, I'm afraid that even if I do this work, it won't result in healthier sexuality with my husband, will it? 
And I said, absolutely. And in fact, some of the women on the, the professionals now that are on the video series that I interviewed, uh, they talked about that, how that, that changed. And I remember one of the women, she's from North Carolina. She is now ministering to women who are, who are survivors of sexual abuse. She told me, and she said on the, on the video, she said, for the first 10 years of our marriage, she said, I do not know how we had two children because I did everything I could to avoid intimacy with my husband. And she said, and when we did, I would roll over at night and I would hold myself and I would cry myself to sleep. That was the pain that she had. Her husband didn't even know she'd been sexually abused. And when she shared that with him and she got into recovery, then things uh, are happening. I, I suppose that things in, at home are, are doing well now, okay? Uh, now, this was funny, okay? I got to tell you this. Sorry, if you're a guest with us, we're kind of raw, okay? All right, just because we kind of deal with reality. And, so, if you, and if you're angry about that, and if you're angry about the there's rawness... There's a group for that. That's right. There's, there's a, a group, group for that. that. Yeah. We have, a, we have a freedom group for that. Yes. Okay, so here we are. Here we are. I'm up there. This is serious. We, man, I'm telling you what, there's tears flowing and stuff. And, and then in the course of that, as I was answering these questions, I said, you know, it frustrates me so much that a man had to be the one that produced this series. A woman should have produced the Fearless Series for women. Why did a man have to do it? And one woman sitting there said, because you've got balls. <laughs> And the house literally came down. And I said to her, ma'am, that is one of the funniest things I've heard in a long, long time. I'm taking that home and I'm giving it as a free gift to my church congregation Sunday morning. And they, and they appreciate it. And they, they appreciate they it. Really they appreciate do. it. But they are doing the Fearless Series for Women in the spring, that church is. And then on Saturday night, I spoke, uh, Friday night, I spoke for a national ministry that had their annual meeting and they had people that came in from all over the, the country and I got to share the Fearless Series with them before I actually did the talk. So good things are happening. I have a Zoom call Tuesday morning with a church in just south of London, England, who has heard about the Fearless Series and they're wanting to bring that there. So I'm speaking with the pastor and the professional staff there about how to do that. So it's exciting. It's good stuff. It's really exciting stuff. Take your Bibles and turn to Jude, the only chapter. The only <laughs> chapter. Only one chapter in the it's book of just Jude. Jude. If you go to the book of Revelation, you could step back one, left one step, you'll be at the book of Jude. It's about, what, 25 verses that we've been teaching now, it seems like, what, for eight weeks, seven or eight weeks, verse by verse through the book of Jude. First time I've ever done this in over 40 years of teaching God's Word. And this has been one of the richest studies that I've ever done. Mm. We've titled this message this morning, The Art of War, because we are in a spiritual war. 2,500 years ago, a book was written by a Chinese man by the name of Sun Xu, I think that's how you say it, called The Art of War. That was 500 years before the birth of Christ, so it's been 2,500 years ago. And his book is made up of 13 chapters, and each chapter focuses on a particular skill and how it relates to military strategy. And it's interesting that to this day, 2,500 years later, it is still considered one of the foundational thought processes of developing military strategy. The scripture tells us that we are involved in spiritual war. We are at war, not with physical entities, but Ephesians 6 tells us that our war is against the principalities and the powers of the spirits of darkness. And in that text, Paul takes a Roman soldier, the helmet and the breastplate and the truth and, and the belt, and he gives each one of them a spiritual application to kind of drive home this idea that we are literally in spiritual war. And so God spells out the strategy. And make no mistake, our enemy has a strategy as well. And we can sum up our enemy's strategy in one word, and that is deception. 
He comes with deception. He comes with lies. The only tool that the enemy has against you as a Christ follower are lies and his deception. That's taught all through the New Testament. It started with Jesus, he talked about it, and all through the rest of the New Testament. He says he comes as a wolf, but he comes in sheep's clothing, deceiving. He comes as a prophet, but he's actually a false prophet. He comes as an angel of light when he, in fact, is the prince of darkness. He comes to the master's field who has sown good crop in his field, but at night he comes in and he sows weeds in the master's crop. So from beginning to end, he fights his war. His strategy is to lie and to deceive, and that flows out of the very character of who he is. Jesus told us in John 8, that Satan is a liar and he is the father of lies. He lies because he's a liar. It is his character, and he, it is his greatest tool against us. Recently, or not recently, but over the past, gosh, it's been 20 years, I guess now, uh, my son and I uh, got to go to Ireland and play golf. My son was a high school golfer, and the summer after his sophomore year, a friend of ours took us to Ireland to play golf. And then the summer after he graduated from high school, we went to Ireland again because he was about to start on a, a golf scholarship in college. And it's a beautiful, beautiful place. In fact, they call Ireland the Emerald Isle because it is so green. But that's kind of deceptive a little bit because it's difficult to grow crops. As green as it is, it's very difficult to grow crops because there's a lot of rocks and, and because of the conditions of the soil. But they discovered that there was one crop that was, would proliferate in Ireland and in that condition, and that was potatoes. So in the 1800s, by the 1800s, potatoes were 80% of the Irelanders, uh, how do you say the Irelanders, Irelanders. Uh, with my West Texas accent, uh, daily food intake. How many ways can you cook potatoes? All of the ways. Uh, I guess there's lots of ways. There's many ways. He's a cook. He's a chef. So, so he, he, I guess he knows it. But that sounds kind of boring to me. But it's the only thing that the soil would really grow consistently. But also in the mid-1800s, a famine struck the Emerald Isle. Because an American ship, it's always those stupid Americans that do it. Because an American ship landed on the island, and because it was a long voyage, and because potatoes would last a long time, a lot of their food source for the voyage was potatoes. And so when they landed, they still had potatoes left, and they brought them on shore, and the American potatoes had a disease called blight. And that blight began to spread throughout the island and literally devastated the potato crop. And one million people died of starvation over the course of a few years on the island of Ireland. Another million fled the island any way they could, any way they could get off the island, they did. So two million people population dropped. Today, 170 years later, the population of Ireland has just now, recently, in recent decades, grown back to the, the pre-famine population that, he, that it had. You see... In a sense, that's really what Jude has been saying. As we've been studying through this for seven or eight weeks, you can see that Jude is talking about a blight. It is the blight of apostasy. It is the blight of those who have been exposed to the truth of God, but they've never fully embraced the truth of God, and now they're moving off into false doctrine and trying to draw genuine Christ followers to follow them in that. In fact, in verse 4, Paul, uh, Jude said to them, he says, these people have crept in. They've come in deceptively. They've come under the, almost in the cover of darkness. Mm -hmm. And 
So for 16 verses, he's been talking about, but this morning we turn in verse 17 through 21, and what Jude does is gives a personal strategy for the individual Christ follower to, against this blight, against this disease of apostasy. He's already said that we're to contend with the faith, for the faith with these apostates, but now what do you do of personal soul care? What do you as an individual Christ follower do to, to be sure that you are able and equipped to be able to contend for the faith with these apostates? What is the strategy for us? And so we're going to look at that this morning. And beginning with verse 17, the first thing that he says is that we are to remember our foundation. The, mm. Remember the foundation of our faith. In verse 17, he says, but you. Now, but you is a transition phrase. He's going from what he's been talking about most of the first 16 verses, which he's been talking about these apostates, been talking about what they believe, how they live, and how God is going to bring judgment upon them. And now he goes to the genuine Christian. He says, but you, what are you doing? What are you doing? And what do you need to do in order to be equipped and ready to stay in the faith and to also be able to contend with those who are apostates to the faith. What what would you do? And he reminds them, first of all, he says, remember the foundation of your faith. Remember that upon which the faith is built. And this is what he says, but you remember, stand in, stay with the apostles' words. Hmm. Now, that's very important. Now, that, that was a phrase that they would have all understood. With us, it needs a little more explanation. He said, the, the, the foundation of the faith is the apostles' words. So what is the apostles' words? Well, we'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. But it's the truth of God. It's that which was delivered. It's the measuring stick. It's, it's the measuring stick of all teaching, of all doctrine, of anything that anyone says. It is the apostles' words against which that is to be compared and to be measured So back in verse 3, he said, contend for the faith with these. Listen to this. For that faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. Did you hear that? He says, contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to all the saints. Now, the word saint in the New Testament isn't talking about a Catholic saint. It's talking about anybody who's a Christ follower. We're all saints in Christ. So he's talking about this faith that we're to contend for. Well, what is that faith? The faith is defined by Christian doctrine. It is defined by what God's Word says to us about God, about ourselves, about mankind, about Christ, who He was, what He came to do, and about salvation, and on and on. Well, who was it that delivered? He says this was delivered once and for all. Who was it that delivered the faith to us once and for all? the apostles of Jesus, those who had walked with Jesus, who were then inspired by the Holy Spirit to deliver the things that, to write the things down that Jesus said and to write down what the Holy Spirit told them to. In fact, Jesus told them when they were walking with him before his death, burial, and resurrection, he said, you know what, when I'm gone, the Spirit of God is going to bring to your remembrance everything I've told you. Mm. He told them, he could get ready for it, and, and he didn't tell them to write it down, but that's what the Holy Spirit did. And so they began, when the Holy Spirit began to bring their remembrance, they began to write it down. And then Paul came on the scene, and the Holy Spirit is inspiring his word. It is the faith, it is the doctrine, once for all, delivered to Christians. It's our New Testament. And it's interesting to me that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul reminds us that the church is built upon the foundation. There's this idea of a foundation again. The foundation of what? 
the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And in fact, from the very inception of the church, from the very day that the church was born in Acts chapter 2, when Jesus had, had said the Holy Spirit is going to come and he's going to dwell permanently within you and there's going to be a transition from the Old Testament operation of the Holy Spirit who would just come upon temporarily to empower and then to withdraw. He said, but he's going to come and he's going to dwell within you permanently. And the Holy Spirit did that all those people that were there. And the Apostle Peter was preaching that great Pentecostal sermon and 3,000 people gave their lives to Christ and the Holy Spirit came to seal them for salvation. And Right in that very chapter, it tells us what they were doing. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. There it is. Why? Because the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles' teaching that they got from Jesus and the Holy Spirit as he brought that to their remembrance. So while some wants, are wanting to lure these Christians away, Jude says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Remember the foundation. Right. Remember the doctrinal truth that was delivered to you by the apostles. It is the standard by which all teaching is to be. What I'm saying right now, what Derek is going to say in a moment if I give him a chance to talk, is you have to measure it against the standard, the word of God. That's where we get the word canon, by the way. So Not talk, the canon that you're allowed to fuse and blow a ball out. The but canon of Scripture. The canon of Scripture. We talk about the canon of Scripture. It comes from another word uh, that means read, or it was a, a means by which people would measure things in the ancient days. And, and so when we talk about the canon of Scripture, it is that by which we measure our lives and our actions. Everything is measured against what God has said in this very specific body of work, the Old and New Testaments. Absolutely. And so when you hear a preacher teach or, or somewhere on TV or in another church, and, or when you hear us teach or you read a book, what is the standard by which you measure what you're hearing? You measure it by the standard of the Word of God. It is the canon. It is that yardstick that you are to measure everything according to it. Jude's reminding them, look, these apostates, they're telling false doctrine. They're trying to lead you away into error. Remember, stand upon that foundation of the faith that was once and for all delivered to you. And by the close of the first century, in fact, probably a matter of weeks after Jesus had ascended to heaven, the spiritual battle was already going on within the church about, about truth. But certainly, by the end of the first century, it was in full bloom, the war, the spiritual war against truth and error. The script, we know that the Apostle John was exiled to the island of Patmos by the Roman government. He was an elderly man by this time. <laughs> I've actually been to Patmos. It's just a giant rock. It was used as a prison. They just put you on the rock and you couldn't get off. You'd drown. You had to have a boat to get off. And so he was exiled there by the Roman government because of his Christian faith. And the Spirit of God, the Scripture says, it gave him a vision. Jesus came and gave him a vision. He told him to write it all down. And that's what we have in the book of Revelation. So John is writing all this down, but in chapters 3 and 4 of the book of Revelation, by the way, it's not Revelations, it's one, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what That's right. it says. That's how it starts, the revelation of Jesus Christ of when he comes again and the events that are going to be leading up to it. So in chapter 3 through 4, God tells John to write a letter to the seven churches of Asia Minor. They were very influential churches, and he said, I've got some things that I want them to hear. Write this down and then send this to them. And it's interesting, when you read the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, five of the seven 
He chides them because they're already drifting away from truth. They're already, Jesus had not been resurrected more than, what, 60 years or something from about that time. And churches were already going away, moving, being lured away from the truth. Someone said that humankind is only one generation from barbarism. (laughs) And when you think about it, that's true. All it takes is one generation of parents who do not teach their children the values and the morals of their culture and, 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 and it's still in them. All it takes is one generation of parents that refuse to do that. And what does that generation do? They become barbaric. How many of you are in a life Bible study? Yeah. So That's you, our Sunday school for, for guests. Sunday That's school, what we call yeah. our Sunday school. Uh, so you know, based on the book of Judges, how true that statement really is. Mm-hmm. One generation is all it took. And Israel went into the toilet. <laughs> Metaphorically Metaphorically speaking. speaking proverbially speaking. The outhouse, I guess, for right. them. That was all, funny. It's all ahead. They I didn't know. laugh. They didn't laugh. <laughs> it's a tough crowd. <laughs> this is a t- the first service thought that was pretty funny. They did. Did I say that? I, I think, think, I, I think, think I we're pretty funny. I don't, I, I, mean, I, don't <laughs> I don't even think I even said that in the first service. Ha uh-huh. ha. Wow, it's even worse. They're mocking us now. Yeah, they are. They're mocking us. Hey, you have something to say about I do. that in a moment. He's hold gonna, on to that mocking. Ta- he, yeah, hold on. He's I gonna, got a word for he's you. He's going to talk about you in a moment. <laughs> I've heard it said that civilizations are not murdered. They commit suicide. Mm. That's true. Civilizations aren't mur- murdered from the outside. They disease and die from the inside. They commit suicide. Benjamin Franklin, as he was leaving the Constitutional Convention, where the type of government under which this new nation would live was being formed at the Constitutional Convention, he was asked, what kind of government do we now have? And he replied, a republic, if you can keep it. Mm. Boy, that's a big if, isn't it? And how much we've drifted away from the principles of that document that they gave us to define this republic in which we live. I know churches all over America. I'm in a lot of churches speaking and traveling. I know churches all over America who at one time were great institutions of biblical truth and of teaching the unmitigated word of God. And today in those churches, Men stand in the pulpit every Sunday and deny the relevance of the Word of God. They deny the inspiration of the Word of God, and it took about one generation for most of them to happen. They weren't murdered. They committed suicide. You know, what's interesting, we, we give a lot of flack, and rightfully so. He's earned it to, to Joel Osteen. Um, but Joel's daddy was a pretty good Bible teacher. He was a darn good Bible teacher. So it's interesting. He was stuck in the Word of God. It's interesting how you even see this. In, and his you know, son doesn't even read it. A lot of prominent pastors today have this sort of generational gap, and it's one generation. Just one generation. I mean, how could you? That's a great illustration. I mean, there were things I disagreed with his dad sure. about it, but they were not issues of the faith. No. They were just minor issues, but man, because he was a gospel preacher and teacher, word by word, verse Very by verse, so. and now his son out there doesn't even have a Bible. I don't know if he ever read one. It's wild. Wild. And it doesn't take long. Uh, see, see it's, it's not about being destroyed. It's about committing suicide. Mm-hmm. And that's what he's saying to these Christians. He says, don't commit suicide. Don't follow after them. Measure everything according to this standard of God's truth. And then, uh, you know, there's some passages, First John 4, 1, where, again, John was an apostle. He warns against apostasy. Second Peter, Peter warns against false prophets. First Timothy, Paul is writing to young Timothy. You know, don't 
don't be drawn away from the foundation of the faith. So the question is this. Do you think Jude's warning was popular to his hearers? <laughs> no, I doubt it. Let me ask you this. Are truth tellers, prophetic truth tellers today who stand before a congregation of people or speak it out, are they popular with people? No. No, they kill the prophets. That's what the scripture says. Watchers on the wall, the people that watch on the wall and cry out the warning of what is coming, they're never popular. Nope. And you know why? Because people want to remain in their comfort zone. Yep. And the idea that we might have to give up our little comfortable little lives and maybe draw a sword and protect our city or protect our home or whatever it is, that's never, never popular because they want to stay in their little bubble. And so often, that's why they kill the prophets. Jude is speaking a message that's not really popular, but he's saying, listen, folks, they want to draw you away. You stand upon the truth of God. Second of all, he says that you're to recognize the fruit of these apostates. Now, there's an idea that has crept into the church, into Christendom, that says that <clears throat> you should never judge anyone, right? You don't ju Judging is, that's a bad thing for Christians to do. And we'll quote like Matthew 7, 1, where Jesus says, judge not that you not be judged. Don't you dare judge me. Don't judge. I judging, mean, I'm sleeping with my girlfriend, but don't, but don't you judge, judge me. don't judge me. Yeah, absolutely. You don't judge. Judging is bad. Christians are bad when they judge. That's not really what Jesus means in Matthew 7, 1. Jesus is setting up in a lot of actually passages in Matthew 5 through 7, something that we would call a principle of reciprocation. In other words, what he's saying is that in the way you do certain things, you will also expect to receive that back. It's not negative or positive. It's just a reality of life. If you don't want to be judged harshly, then don't judge harshly. If you don't want to be judged lightly, then don't judge lightly. It's not that if you judge, that's what earns your judgment. Spoiler alert, everyone's getting judged. <laughs> it's coming down. It's going to happen. Yeah, that's, that doesn't take away anything from that. Jesus in other places actually tells us. in the first service, us, he said that Santa Claus doesn't exist. I did, yeah. I, yeah, big. There were some parents that were really you, unhappy about you, that. You, uh, whatever. So, uh, in, in, later on in John's gospel, Jesus is going to come back and actually tell us a little bit more about this whole nature of judgment. He says, uh, in John chapter 7, verse 1, sorry, John chapter 7, verse 24, do not judge by appearances, oh, yeah. but judge with right judgment. In other words, there is a way to judge that is wrong, that is by appearance, it's on the outward, the way people dress, the way people look, the way, kind of the outward uh, legalistic Pharisaism, and then there is a right kind of judgment, but we've got to understand what that right kind of judgment is. What does that mean? It's a Greek word here, it means uh, to separate or make a distinction. It's the Greek word krino, to separate or make a distinction. How do we make a right distinction? What are we looking at? What are we distinguishing between, right? Not appearances, but actions. We are looking at the actions of other individuals and distinguishing between how they are acting and what the foundation of the apostles' teachings says. John's, or Jesus says in John 14, 15, this is a really, honestly, terrifying verse. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So by Jesus' words, how do we know that someone loves him? Is it because they have bumper stickers on their car that says something about Jesus or the fish or whatever? 
Is it because they have coffee mugs with scripture verses on them? He loves coffee mug scriptures. <laughs> Is it because they listen to Christian music or Christian radio? Is it because they're in church every Sunday and every Wednesday? No, these are all fine things. But emphatically, no, that is not how you can tell someone is a Christian. You can tell something about the quality of someone's faith by the way that they keep the commandments of Christ. Mm. What are they doing? The fruit of their lives. In other words, the actions of that individual say something really important about their faith, the quality of their faith. So then we get to Jude 18 and 19, and he says, they said to you, in the last time, and they said to you, by the way, that's a reference to the apostles. That's right. He's saying, remember the apostles' teachings. Those apostles said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. In other words, he's giving us an outline of how we can, in the art of war, recognize the enemy. He's saying you need to recognize these behaviors of these individuals, evaluate them, separate them, make a distinction between them and what the Scripture says. In other words, judge. Judge them. Yeah. Judge them. Are they genuine or not? And again, spoiler alert, they're not. They're not good. They're not good people. A few weeks ago, we talked in, in Jude 12 about how these apostate people are like fruitless trees. We get here today, we find out they actually do have some fruit. It's just that it's rotten. It's very bad fruit. So they, they, they say they're a Christian, but their actions tell a different story. Jude is giving us an outline of how to recognize who these people are. In the art of war, you need intel. You need reconnaissance. You need information about who your enemy is. You have to know your enemy in, in order to engage in war with them. So I want us to think about these four characteristics that Jude gives as sort of an, an intel list, reconnaissance, if you will, on how to identify who these apostate people are. He gives four. Number one, he says they shame. They are people who shame. They're scoffers. That's the word that he uses. That's a very religious word. It's, it's not <laughs> something that you're going to hear people probably saying a whole lot, but it's a word that means that they, they are people who mock others or who speak derisively or mockingly to humiliate. These are people who are critical of other individuals in a toxic and negative manner with anyone who disagrees with them. And they use that to draw you over to their side. Yes, yeah. absolutely. It's, a, it's a, 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 an act of power. And there's a term for this today, actually, in, in the uh, social media world called dragging. Anyone ever heard of this term before, dragging? Uh, it's a very new term. It's, it's come up only within the last, I don't know, I, I haven't seen it being used more than maybe a few months. But it's a form of cyberbullying. Uh, where there is a deliberate attack on someone for saying something that is offensive to the cultural norms in order to humiliate or silence that person to stop saying what they're saying. Hmm. So last week I talked about the, the four easy steps of destroying a society, right? And, and step one was rejecting objective truth. From there, you redefine morality. Step three was reviling those who disagree with you. One of the ways that we revile those who disagree with us is by dragging them, hmm. particularly, again, on the Internet. And this is a very effective practice. In, with social issues, social issues have, have largely been relegated to, to tribal or communal issues. Mm -hmm. We're no different today than we were when the Tower of Babel happened. You know, everyone was together and united. God separated with languages because of how sinful we were. And from that moment on, we have been in tribes or communities that have essentially waged war against one another since then. 
Now, the same could be seen on a social level. You have community groups who identify with certain ideals, and when those ideals are attacked or spoken against, the community sort of rallies and attacks that other party who is, who is taking shots at them. This is what we see uh, today very, very prominently on uh, social media. Someone speaks out about a practice or a moral issue of some kind, and you don't even have to coordinate the attack. If you're a part of that community who participates in that activity that is being held in question, everybody, they're like velociraptors. They just like intuitively know where to attack, and they attack. And, and let me tell you, it's effective. It's very effective. It silences a lot of people. Mm. There are a great number of academic studies now that are happening. Uh, I, I did some, some looking in some academic journals I have access to this week, and there's a lot of studies now within the last probably year and a half on the effects of social media, particularly cyberbullying, with a correlation to rising suicide rates, which we all know intuitively are connected, but yep. us academics have to make you know, really mm. long, boring papers to prove our points. So <laughs> this is what's happening right, in 15 this... 15-page paper to say... What, what, what everyone knows. Get, yeah. Right, exactly. But this is what's going on. And, and, and here's what Jude is getting at. This kind of behavior, this sort of humiliation, this sort of mocking and, and speaking toxically, this is the behavior of an apostate, not a Christian. Hmm. And I wish I could say that this is a behavior that I only see non-believers engaging in, and it's not. You see professing Christians doing the same thing. It's one thing to be stern, it's one thing to speak truth to opposition and stand firm in that. That sometimes looks offensive to somebody who it is geared towards, and it's not. It's just truth. It's an entirely different thing to speak, to humiliate, to knock down, to drag, to take character shots, to hit below the belt. It's the difference between debating an issue and trying to destroy a person. Absolutely. And that's what this is getting at. Yes. They, they, try to shame you into yes. coming over to their side. And Judah's saying, this is how the enemy operates. This is not how Christians operate. And, and, and again, something that we have to learn from as believers. Will we engage? Here's the reality. I said this first service. You will have people who will disagree with you and quite heatedly if you profess your faith. And not just your faith, but particularly the morals that are derived from that's your the faith. Truth. That's the truth. We've said this through the yes. book of Jude. The world is not threatened by our faith. If you want to believe in Jesus, they say, well, go ahead. You can believe in that myth. But once you espouse a biblical morality, you become the enemy. You, you the, will, you, you, they attack you will, You will find resistance. You will be met with heated disagreement. And in that moment, you will have a choice governed by the Holy Spirit of God that indwells within you you will have a choice to either take the way of Jesus, who when he was mocked and humiliated, prayed for, stood firm on truth, but prayed for and was gentle and kind, or start shaming back. To sh shame back. It's an effective tool of the enemy. It is not an effective tool of, of a Christ follower. Amen. The Bible says this is how an apostate acts, not a Christian. They shame. Number two, they satisfy the flesh. They don't they don't just disagree with and revile those who disagree with them. They do whatever they want for their own pleasure. Christians are called in Scripture, we are called to live with a high level of self-control. Mm -hmm. Paul says that, that all things are lawful, but not all things edify, not all things build up. There are some things that it's not even a matter of right and wrong. It's just a matter of having self-control not to do the thing that you want to do. It, this is a mark of the Holy Spirit. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5.23, self-control. So when someone comes along claiming to be a believer and they demonstrate literally no control, 
They, they give over to temptation every time. They do whatever they want at whatever given point just to satisfy themselves. They live hedonistically. They, they celebrate it publicly. This is an indicator that something is wrong. Now, will you win every battle of temptation as a Christ follower? No, absolutely not. I'm not saying that. This is why you need a Savior. But zero self-control? That's a sign of apostasy. Number three, they separate. Verse 19, it says it is these who cause divisions. In other words, apostates are divisive. They set Christians against one another. They cause drama. They stir up trouble. They get in the middle of things they have no business being in, and they try to figure out a way to get one person to go against another just to create problems, usually to draw, again, one person over into their corner to believe what they are espousing. Scripture calls us not to divide but to unite. It's a mark, again, of what it means to be a Christian. 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul says, I appeal to you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united. Check this out. In the same mind, that's the foundational teachings of the apostles, and the same judgment, that's the ability to render a distinction between what they've said and how people are acting. That is what unites us. You know, the interesting thing about that is that Jude has already said that they're to contend for the faith, to be contentious when they see false doctrine. Yet, Scripture says that we are to be unified, yeah. to be unity. What are we used to be unified around? Around the truth. Yes. See, our, and, and a lot of times what happens today is, well, we should be unified, so let's just let people believe what they want to believe. The Scripture never teaches That's that. That's not unity. That's not unity. That's not unity That's pluralism. Yeah. And so when it talks about unity, it's like being unified around truth. Contend with those that want to leave the truth. Yes. Yes. One way you can identify whether or not someone is a genuine follower of Jesus is by, by weighing how committed they are to the unity of the body. Are they committed to unity? Are they truly committed to unity? Or are they there to stir up trouble and set people against one another? Fourth, he says they are spiritless. He sums this up by saying they're void of the Spirit. They're worldly people void of the Spirit. In other words, all of these practices that he's just gotten done, all these characteristics, these are really difficult to participate in if you have the indwelling Holy Spirit within you. You, you end up quenching the Holy Spirit. You offend the Holy Spirit. You, you have this whole conscience thing happening. It, it, it eats you alive. David talks about, it, about his, his losing his energy. and his yeah. yeah, he just absolutely worn down. But check this out. If there's no Spirit of God within you, then you can live as recklessly as you want. <laughs> and no so, quenching or grieving of the Spirit because he's not there. No. And so what you do is you look at these individuals who are practicing these things and, and, and measure, is there any sign of repentance or even conviction? If there's not, ding, 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 that's a, that's a warning bell. May not have the Holy Spirit in them. Jude is saying, be on the lookout. Remember the foundation. Remember the foundational teachings of the apostles. This is what we stand on. This is what we measure everything by. And then use that measuring rod to measure the actions, not the appearance, the actions of other people to determine, are these people really who they say they are? And last, we are to resist apostasy. Now, we, we've come to understand who these apostates are, what they look like, how they act. Now, knowing their lies, we need to know how to resist them. And there are three primary ways that Jude, Jude gives us. Number one, we study. He says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. What does it mean to build yourself up in your most holy faith? It means taking in the foundational teachings of the apostles, which is where? The Bible, right, the scriptures, 
Praise God you got that right. The Bible. <laughs> not a blog, right? Not a, not a TV show, not a, not a book. The Bible. The, the faith only. is defined in the words yes. of the apostles. Yes. Let it mold you. Take it in and let it mold your thoughts and your actions. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, as Paul says. This is so crucial. I, can't, I cannot overemphasize this enough. Let me give you a principle. You will not resist... You will not resist the lies of apostasy if you've not learned the truth of God. That's right. You know why? You will have nothing to measure the lies against. Hmm. If you don't know the word, how will you know what is true and what is not true? So many Christians get drugged into these dumb, godless, unwise ways of thinking because they're completely unaware of what God's word says. Tell us how you really feel about it. I will, right now. <laughs> judges. Okay. We mentioned judges a moment ago. You guys, if you were in Bible study today... Uh, you studied Jephthah, which is a horribly tragic story where a man literally burns his daughter as a human sacrifice because he makes a stupid vow to God to burn whatever comes out of his house if God will give him a victory. God gives him a victory, and so what does Jephthah do? Comes home, sees the, I don't know, only person living with him in his house come out of his house, <laughs> which happens to be his daughter, and he's shocked by this somehow. And he follows through with this vow, and he offers her as a sacrifice. He ends up in the end of his life as a judge, looking more like a Canaanite than an Israelite. Yeah. Here's the shocking and sad, horrible part of the story, is that the Bible, the Torah, the law of God, actually gives him a way out. It first had forbidden human sacrifice. At first, you, yeah, <laughs> but it says, if you make a vow that you cannot, you cannot bring to deliver, then you will pay a priest X amount of shekels depending on what it is that you have offered. For a, a female, Jephthah's daughter's age, it was 10 shekels. And you know what he did? He burned her. And you know why? Because no one knew the Bible. No one knew that law. It had been lost in that day and time. Because generations, not just one, but generations had passed at this point. They didn't know nothing about the Word of God. How many mistakes have you made in your life because you didn't know that it was wrong? Because you didn't know the Word of God. This is why there's so many opportunities here at City on a Hill to plug into Scripture. Sunday mornings, Wednesdays, Sunday Bible studies, 9 and 10.30 a.m. I teach a master class on Wednesday nights at 6.45 where we talk very in-depth about Old Testament and New Testament. And we're going to be doing a verse-by-verse -verse study here pretty soon, coming in 2022. There are lots of opportunities to plug into Scripture. The question is, what is preventing you from going? What is it? What could be so important well, that you know, it would lead you away? On, survivors on at 7 o'clock on Wednesday right. nights. And... Right. Right. You know, I mean, but it's, we laugh, but it's true. Like, this is the kind of reasoning that people go through. And, and look, I'm not knocking that. We, there are plenty. We watch Survivor on Wednesday nights wow, we've at got, 10 o'clock. recorded. Right. <laughs> because I'm here. Because this matters to me. Y'all need some technological instruction. Ask one of our baby, one of our uh, millennials. They'll yeah. teach you. We'll teach you how to record it. How to record. We study. That's the first way you resist the lies of apostasy. Mm -hmm. Second, you stand. Okay, we're going to rock this out. If you give us seven minutes, which will mean we're out of here five minutes late, I think you'll, you'll get this. This is, this is an incredible point right here. Verse 21, he says that, and you are to keep yourselves in the love of God. So the first thing is this recognizing you know, the apostate because you're, you're standing in the truth. And then he says, and you're to keep yourself in the love of God. Now, here's the big question of this verse. Is he saying that keep yourself loving God more and more 
Like, oh, I love me some Jesus. I need to keep myself in my love for the Lord. You know? Or is he saying, keep yourself in God's love that comes to you? Mm. In the original language, in the Greek text, the construction can be translated either way. The only way we know how to translate it is by its context, its immediate context, and also then the overall context of the New Testament. Because the word God is in a case in the Greek text called the genitive case. And it can be, it can be called a subjective genitive, which means that it is love of God, which means it's love that flows from God to us. In other words, it's God's love. Or if it's the objective genitive, and the form is exactly the same. So only the context can cue you how to translate it. The objective genitive, then it would mean that it is love that flows from you to God. In other words, your love for God. So when he says, keep yourself in the love of God, what is he saying? Is he saying that you should love God more and keep doing that, or you should be more connected with how much God loves you? Keep falling in love with Jesus Just every day. I love with Jesus. I love me some Jesus. I'm being cynical because I am. <laughs> so the difference is huge, though, between those two things. Is it your love for him that keeps you, that you keep in, or is it his love for you that you are to keep yourself in? Well, let me ask you, which one is stronger? Which one are you going to build your life on, your love for him or his love for you? Which one is most dependable? Which one is more trustworthy? Which one is more stable? Which one is more in sync with the rest of what the New Testament says? I do not believe that Jude is saying, now you folks just keep trying to love God more. <laughs> no. He's saying, you keep standing in the love of God for you. Subjective genitive. When trouble comes, when difficulty comes, when tragedy comes, keep yourself in the love of God. What's going to sustain you when all hell breaks loose in your life? Is it going to be how much you love Jesus or how much Jesus loves you? You see, I hear people say this all the time, and it just makes my skin crawl. Man, I'm just working to love God more. And I said, why don't you stop it? Yeah, we ought to love him. He says we are to love him. Jesus says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. But that's not what sustains us. What sustains us is the everlasting, irreparable God love that God has for us. That's where we stand. And I'm reminded in Romans 8 where, he talks, where Paul talks about this. This is the very point Paul is making. He said, who shall separate us? From the love of Christ. The question is so ridiculous that something could separate us from God's love for us, and he just goes on and on. He said, well, tribulation, will distress, will persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? I guarantee you all of those things can separate you from your love that you have for God. But not one of them is going to separate you from the love that God has for you. He says, as it is written, man, for your sake, Lord, we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Mm. In another place, Paul says it is the love of Christ that constrains us, that controls us 
What does he mean? That he loved so much for he loved Jesus so much that he just couldn't stop doing this. No, it's the love that Jesus has for him that that moves him on, that controls him to keep doing the things he does. Let me say something that may sound controversial, but I believe it is true. Most of you need to stop focusing on trying to love God more. And you need to focus your life on how much God loves you. That's what will control you. That's what will sustain you when the bottom falls out. Don't stand in your love for him. Yes, we should love him. But how fickle is our love for him? Stand in his love for you. That will protect you against all of these things that want to draw you aside. And they will protect you from the downs of life. Wow, I don't feel much love for Jesus, but man, I know how much he loves me. Will bring us through. And, And if I could just add to that, that that task of standing more in his love for me is made so much more difficult if I am unwilling to love myself, Mm -hmm. if I am unwilling to receive the forgiveness that God says he has for me and issue that same kind of forgiveness to myself. so many, And we do have a group for that. We do have a group for that. We do. We really do. (laughs) So, so So many of you struggle, so many of you will struggle with standing in God's love for you because you believe deep down you are unworthy of love. And God says, I decide who's worthy of my love, not you. And nobody is, so I'm just going to give it as an act of my grace. That's right. Is anyone worthy? No, except for Jesus. Mm. So we can get that off the table. And yet God still loves you. We study, we stand, lastly, we search. Jude says we're waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. He's talking about the second coming. He's talking about waiting and and anticipating this time when Jesus is going to come again. And and it doesn't mean that you just quit your job and quit all your responsibilities and sit up on your roof. I'm waiting. Yeah, yeah, that's not what he's saying. He said he wants to find us with our hand to the plow when he comes. Absolutely. That's right. So in everything you do, whether it's family, whether it's work, whether it's hobbies, extracurriculars, Jude is saying you do all of this in light of his return. You do all of this anticipating his return, expecting his return. You let his return motivate you, in other words, how you do all of these other things. Hmm. I want to be found doing the things that Jesus told us to do. Not perfectly. With grace, understanding I'm broken. But I want to be found ministering to these people right here. That's right. In the the name of Jesus. To the broken, to the hurting that's where I want to be when the trumpet sounds. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just an incredible reminder of your powerful, unstoppable, unfathomable love mm-hmm. for us. We face a ruthless, a reckless, and an unfair enemy. And, and there are times, God, when life becomes very difficult more so than just the average difficulty that we face. Tragedy, unexpected circumstances, and Lord, sometimes just flat out evil. And it can be discouraging. Lord, it it can feel impossible. Sometimes it is impossible. Sometimes God, and oftentimes you allow the impossible to occur because you know we cannot handle it on our own. And it forces us to our knees. It forces us back into that position where we receive 
your love for us. I pray, God, that this would be a, a stern reminder today for your people to remember that. Your love, not ours. Amen. And for those, God, who are devoid of the Spirit, who have never bowed before you and, and professed faith in Christ, who have never seen the changing power of your Spirit in their life, I pray that this would be a time where, where he is speaking, he is, he is whispering, and, and maybe even shouting at this point to them, today is the day, today is the day. You know, you know what is true, and that they would accept it, and they would bow before you and receive your Son, Jesus, and that we would receive them. Lord, as we've received everyone who has come professing him as Savior. We thank you. We praise you that you are a, a great God that loves us even when we are unlovable. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Man, thank you, guys. Hey, I do want to make you. one comment. Uh, and this is, I'm sorry, very business-oriented. It's not Go Cowboys. It's not it? Go Cowboys. Okay. Uh, it's very business-oriented. If you are a parent of a student in the student ministry. Let me just holler at you for one minute. Uh, we are instituting the same check-in procedures and check-out procedures that we have in the kids' building. Kids' building for 10 years has had a check-in system with stickers where you enter them into a computer and they print off and you have to give a sticker to pick up your child. Now, obviously, if your student is driving themselves here and back, then there, there's an exception that's, that's to be made. But here's what's happening is after youth group during second hour, when they dismiss, everyone sort of disperses. And, and when your student disperses, we are hoping... They make it from us to you. At this age, they sometimes have detours, have, you know, that are not healthy. And, and, the, and the question of, of who is responsible for your child, you know, we talk about sort of uh, dropping the ball. Well, your children are, are in our hands until you come and take the ball from us. And so we need you. It's, it's a little bit of a different practice. It's going to take a little bit of time to get used to, but uh, we are doing that check-in, and we're going to ask you to go and pick them up. You can come just to the front of the gym building, and we'll send them down. Go rescue the youth workers from your teenagers. From your kids. Absolutely. God bless That's you. That's what we're saying. Yes. See you all. God bless you. Have a great day.